Well, we uh, continue in a new sermon series called Kingdom Habits of the Heart, which is a sermon series on the Beatitudes of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And we're on to the second Beatitude, which is uh, verse 3. But each Sunday I want to read all of them, along with a little bit of comes after, because the context is really important. So hear God's word to us this morning from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1, uh, 1 through 6, 16. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward and is great in heaven. For, they so, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, this morning as we reflect on what it means to mourn, I pray that you would allow all of us to begin engaging that that process, which is a deep spiritual process. Lord, I pray that you would meet us in the place of our losses, the losses that we have sustained over the past year, the losses perhaps that we are still uh, grieving, or perhaps the losses that we haven't figured out how yet to start grieving. Lord, we pray that your comfort, the comfort of your spirit, the comforter, the comfort of your presence and of your promises to us would be felt and real today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. How is mourning or grieving connected to the estate of flourishing and blessedness? To mourn is to is to mourn is the expression of sorrow and grief over loss or wrongdoing or injustice or tragedy in the world. And so how does this lead to flourishing? It would seem to be the exact opposite, right? A burden of each of the sermons in this series 
is to wrestle with Jesus's claim that each estate or posture, or we call them habits of the heart, that he describes is itself points us in the direction of true human flourishing and blessedness. But this, of course, I think is really challenging because these kingdom habits of the heart are so alternative and countercultural to the way our world, our culture, tends to think about what it means to flourish as a, as a person, what it means to be blessed. And so it's, it's helpful to recall what, what a beatitude is. And I just want to remind you of what we talked about last week. A beatitude, a beatitude is a God-centered picture of true human flourishing. It's a God-centered picture of true human flourishing. It is Jesus' description of the good life according to the kingdom of heaven. It is an invitation into this good life. The Beatitudes offer us a vision and a way of being in the world that results in our true flourishing both now and in the age to come. And so when we as a church, we embody these kingdom habits of the heart in our daily life and our personal life as a whole community, we become salt and light in the world. And the kingdom of God becomes visible. And so in the light of our beatitude this morning about blessed are those who were mourn, one of the missionary callings of the church in the world is to lead the world in mourning, to lead the world in grieving. Which then brings me back to the original question, though. How is mourning a form of flourishing? How does grief and sadness lead to blessedness? Jesus here is not saying that mourning or sadness in itself is blessedness, but that the activity of mourning, the activity of grieving carried out as a kingdom habit of the heart does lead us, will lead us to a place of flourishing. My therapist said something to me um, the other day that gave me... um, help me understand the deep spiritual insight of this, this beatitude. And I should say, a lot of what I have to say this morning about grief um, has been informed with conversations from him, but he said this. He said, the well-functioning person is always grieving. The well-functioning person is always grieving. I think we would tend to think the opposite. If you're grieving, then something must be wrong with you or in your life. But I think this is exactly what Jesus means when he says that blessed are those who mourn. He's not saying that well-functioning people are always dour or sad or moping. But friends, to grieve, to mourn, is to be present to the reality of the world as it really exists. Loss is a normal part of life. To live, to grow old, is to experience loss after loss. We are creatures. We are mortal. We are fragile. We are susceptible to harm, to sickness, to death. 
And as sinners, we have a tendency to always be screwing things up, hurting ourselves, hurting others, blowing things up. We live in a world that is deeply broken, and we don't have to look very far into our city to see that and to be reminded of that constantly. A world filled with all kinds of inequality, inequity, tragedy, and injustice. The well-functioning person, or better, uh, better phrased, the spiritually mature person has learned how to emotionally engage loss and brokenness without being undone by it. I think that's important. The emotionally mature, spiritually mature person is able to emotionally engage loss and brokenness and tragedy without being undone by it. Jesus' call to grieve and to mourn is not a summons to wallow in sadness, but rather it is an invitation to journey through loss and pain that leaves us on the other side of it, of that process, spiritually transformed people that are flourishing in God's kingdom. There is a lot of dark emotion swirling around in our world today. I don't need to tell you that. You know it. You feel it. In a very short period of time, just in the past six months, it seems as if the whole globe has come undone because of COVID-19. We are in the midst of um, an incredibly polarizing presidential election. We uh, continue to struggle with racial injustice and racial strife and misunderstanding with senseless looting and destruction of property, with extreme vigilantism, with economic insecurity. I mean, you just pile it all on. And there's so much dark emotion. And a lot of these things are fueled by that dark emotion. And when those things happen, those events, they, they, they induce in us dark emotion. And what I mean by dark emotion is this. It is the feeling or the experience of fear, anxiety, despair, grief, and anger. And the thing about emotions is this, and especially dark emotions, is that they're contagious. They're contagious. You, they're viral. You can touch somebody else with them and pass it along. However, I want to be clear here, emotions in themselves, in and of themselves, are neither good nor bad. They simply are. They are they're a window. Emotion is a window into the way in which we um, process and react to things that are happening to us and around us in the world. To feel anger, to feel grief, or to feel um, anxiety or fear is not wrong. It's not. It's not wrong to have emotion. And it's not in and of itself sinful. What's most important is what we do with those emotions. What do we do with these dark emotions? How do we process them? How do we make sense of them in the light of the kingdom of God, of being children of God? How do we bring them to God? One of the reasons I chose the Beatitudes um, to focus on during this season was to help us process a lot of the dark emotion. And these Beatitudes, especially the first four, are very much focused on us doing that kind of heart work, 
in the light of God's kingdom, processing and responding to them appropriately as the people of God. And today what I really want to just focus on and reflect on is, is, is how mourning, the act and process of mourning loss, can lead to what Miriam Greenspan calls the alchemy of dark emotion. The alchemy of dark emotion. Perhaps you're, you're wondering, what, do you, what does that word alchemy mean? Um, alchemy is actually, historically goes back to the Middle Ages when you had these sort of scientists or whatever you want to call them who are trying to take base metals like copper and iron and bronze and to turn them, transform them into gold and platinum. And it was sort of like this magical transformation. Of course it never worked, right? But we talk about alchemy today. Usually it has this sense of a magical transformation of something. There is an alchemy, in a sense, of dark emotion that has to take place, and I think that mourning is a part of that process. And by alchemy as a Christian, I don't mean that it's a kind of magical, therapeutic thing, that if we do this step, this step, and that step, then we'll have gold on the other end. But it is mysterious operation of God's grace in us, the way we process loss, the way we process the dark emotions. And so this morning I want to just answer two questions. What does it mean to mourn? And how does God comfort us? What does it mean to mourn? The process of mourning begins with the recognition of loss. Jeremiah opens the book of Lamentations with this cry. He says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. And he's referring to the, the exile of the people of Israel out of Israel into Babylon and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. To mourn is to be aware that something in my life which brought me comfort which brought me joy, which I built my identity on, has been taken away from me. And some losses are easier to recognize than other losses. When a loved one dies, when we lose a job, when we lose our health to sickness or injury, it's easy to recognize those losses as losses, but other losses, I think, are harder to recognize as losses, despite the fact that they impact us emotionally and, and, and sort of churn up a lot of dark emotion. And the psalmist prays, Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? The psalmist is trying to discern what is destabilizing his heart and bring it to the Lord. And I think sometimes it's very hard for us to actually discern the real source of dark emotion in us. We just feel angry. <laughs> or we just feel anxiety or this, this sense of, of fear. And oftentimes this is because of changes in our life or changes in the world or transitions. And they can be things that outwardly don't are that bad. Maybe children just growing up and maybe moving out of the house. Or the slow fading of a close friendship or the growing dissatisfaction with a career you once enjoyed, 
or just being forced to, to being forced to to give up on a life goal that you'd always hope would happen or letting go of a cherished image of yourself how how and what you thought you were these are all losses and mourning begins with a recognition of them as loss but it's not simply just recognizing loss and part of the recognition process is the naming process to mourn is to name for ourselves personally the losses that we have experienced and this is a really central part of the tradition of lament in the bible and there's there's many many chapters and psalms given to this at the heart of lament is naming loss but not only naming what has been lost but naming how the loss of something impacts us emotionally and so lament is filled with with cries of desperation, cries of anger, cries of doubt. And I, there's one loss that I want to name for all of us, which is always in front of us, for, and it's the impact on us of this virus, of COVID-19. COVID-19 has brought a great deal of loss into our lives. Even if we've not personally experienced the virus by getting sick or or, or even if we have not lost somebody to the virus, it has impacted every single one of us. It has taken something from every single one of us. It has changed everything about our daily lives, how we interact with one another. And as a church, I think the biggest loss, at least the way we here at CRC have experienced the impact of COVID-19 is our ability to, in, in, in ways we took for granted, just to have embodied connection with one another. I think the biggest loss for us is, is the ease and the comfort that we used to gain from embodied connection, being present in the flesh with one another. Now it's a lot of work. And I know the worship experience isn't quite the same of what it meant to be. The sanctuary is half empty or a lot more. We're socially distanced. We've got masks. It's hard to talk through a mask and connect with another person. And it takes a toll on us. We have to work all the much harder to stay connected to the community. And I know many of us are feeling disconnected and we're struggling. This is a loss, friends. This is a loss. Social distancing and masks are important. There's a health crisis. We have to do this. And yet we also recognize there's a loss. There's a lot lost and we need to mourn it. Dealing with the emotions of anger is a natural part of the mourning process. When we lose something that is important to us, our natural response is to be angry. However, there is a difference between processing loss and processing wrongdoing. These are different processes. And I think our temptation as a culture is to process our losses as wrongdoings. To process our losses as wrongdoings. There's somebody has to be, somebody has to be held responsible for this, right? Somebody is to blame. Somebody has to be held accountable. And we must remain angry until justice has been served. 
But friends, I think it's really important for us to distinguish in our experience the difference between dealing with guilt and wrongdoing and dealing with loss. These are not the same process. The grieving process is distinct from the guilt and shame process. The grieving process, <clears throat> here's the thing, even with wrongdoing and when wrongdoing occurs, there's almost always loss. And even when we get justice, even when we're able to assign responsibility and blame, it doesn't bring back the thing that has been lost. Justice served will not remove the pain of what we've lost. Only mourning can address deep pain. And when we try to deal with loss by trying to assign blame or processing guilt, what we do is we deny ourselves the one thing we need most in order to heal, which is to begin to let go. Begin to release the attachments of our loss. Central to the grieving process is acceptance of loss. The man Job says, after everything in his life has been wiped away from him, his very first words are this, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. These are the very first words of Job in the book. But they are not his last words, of course. It's not as if he says this and then remains silent. They are actually just the beginning, the framework for him for 39 chapters, processing his loss with his friends. Those who um, do grief studies, who study the mourning process, the therapists and whatnot, they talk about a principle of irreversibility. And they say that the true work of grief only begins when a loss is accepted as permanent and irreversible. Only in the face of this irreversibility are we able to then begin to surrender to what and let go of old attachments. Only in a sense of the irreversibility and surrender, then can we open ourselves up to something new? I think that this is the hardest part about mourning. This is the, absolutely the hardest part about grief. We can recognize loss, we can name loss, but it is very hard for us to accept it. We do not want to let go because we are afraid that if we do let go, that we lose a part of ourselves. That if we do let go, we have to accept this new reality as permanent, as the new norm. That if we let go, we have to admit these changes in our life and in the world. And sometimes it feels safer to stay angry, to become despairing, or to keep assigning blame, because then we protect ourselves, right? We don't have to become vulnerable to this new reality. But friends, when 
When we respond in this way, what happens is we get stuck. We can't grow. We can't move forward. We can't adapt to life as it really is right now and take what it has to offer us. And what ends up happening is we become closed off. A refusal to mourn is to remain inconsolable and closed off to the new life that God wants to bring. It is only by committing to the very painful process of mourning that we can experience God's comfort. Now, I know this is easier said than done. It is not simply, we can simply do. Somebody telling you, you just have to accept this reality as it is, does, usually never works for us. The kind of mourning that leads to healing that is deep within us is an invisible work of God's grace in us. And I would remind you of the beatitude that comes before this one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there is a causal relationship between these beatitudes. In order to mourn deep loss, to accept loss, we must become poor in spirit. Mourning deep loss calls us to become poor in spirit because it means we have to become vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable. It means we have to open ourselves up to new realities, to changes that we have resisted. It means that we have to surrender almost in all cases an image that we had of ourselves. It is to admit to a certain kind of helplessness to let go of caring so much what other people think about us, how they will perceive us. And it is very humbling to have something that is precious taken away from you, whether it is because of your own fault or whether it was outside of your control, to be humbled before realities more powerful than yourself. And it is natural, it is instinctual for us to resist and to fight back through becoming angry or becoming despairing or self-pitying. But when we humble ourselves and we commit to the process of mourning, God meets us in our pain and he promises to comfort us. And so how does God do that? How does God comfort us? I want to just draw your attention to that word comfort. What does Jesus promise us? when we mourn. He doesn't promise to take the pain away. He doesn't promise to offer us a solution to the problem. He doesn't promise to reverse the loss. What he offers is comfort. Comfort. Comfort through the journey of mourning. That's what he promises us. And so I want to give you just, I want to be very practical in the end here. I want to give you four observations, four as concrete as I can be, things to think about about how God comforts us. And the first is, is just a reflection on the act of mourning itself. To mourn, to grieve, is not an intellectual process. It is an emotional process. It is rooted in your body. Emotions are rooted in your body. Mourning is to be vulnerable and fully present 
to all the dark emotions that kind of come up to the surface in the face of loss. And it is to be vulnerable to those. And the, ref the important reflection that we do when we mourn is to follow those down. See, as a person that processes the world up here, not generally in my body, it's, a, it's easy to think that if I just think rightly about this, if I have just the right insight or burst of insight, it'll take it away, the pain or whatever. But to mourn is to embrace an emotional process. It is to embrace a journey that will take you in many different directions unexpectedly and will take a lot of time. And so I think it's really important to be patient with yourself when you're mourning, when you're processing grief and loss. Recognize that it will take time. And how you feel now will not necessarily be how you'll feel in the future. Because a lot of times we say, well, how I feel now is always going to be how I feel. But no, that's not true. There's a journey you have to take. And I think it's important for those of us who are friends and family members and brothers and sisters that are drawing along those people who suffer and who mourn to recognize that everyone processes loss and pain in different ways, with different expressions and at different rates. And it's very important that we create space for that. We create space and we don't try to rush people along and say, you should be over this by now. But it's really also important that even as we create space and let people mourn in their own ways and on their own time frame, that, that we do not let them become emotionally disconnected from us. Because that's what happens when you're experiencing pain and loss. You're just to want to push people away, to deal with it on your own, because it's humbling, right? And so as the body of Christ, as believers, we need, to, we need to give people space, but we can't let them push away. We've got to stay connected. Which brings me uh, to the second point. So you have to embrace the emotional process, but the second piece is this, is you have to bring your pain to God. You have to bring your pain to God. Central to the process of mourning as a Christian is to constantly bring your pain and your loss to God through prayer. God needs to be the center of your grief. Even if the expression to God takes the form of anger or doubt, even if you doubt God's love for you, even if you're resentful to God, angry at what he allowed to come into your life, don't push him out of the room. It is better for you to shout and to rage at God than to stop talking to God. Trust me, God can handle it. Read the book of Job. Read the book of Lamentations. God is not afraid of your anger. He can receive all of it. He is not afraid of your doubt. He can receive all of it. Persist, even when you draw no comfort from it. That's what it means to lament, is to be constantly the discipline of bringing one's sorrows and anger to the Lord. Um, I encourage you to pray through the Psalms especially, for they are raw and authentic pictures of, of people at every stage of grief and mourning before God. Anger and doubt, but those on the other side as well. And I would encourage you 
to hold on to the promise that we hear in Psalm 126, which really is a beautiful summary, I think, of this beatitude. Those who sow tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Friends, keep sowing your tears before God and trust that someday you will reap with songs of joy. So we have to embrace the emotional process. We have to continually bring our pain before God. But third, we need to stay connected with the body. As I said a moment ago, our tendency when we suffer or when we experience loss, especially loss that is humbling to us, is to push people away, to disconnect. But the thing we need most as we suffer and as we mourn is connection. Yes, we need space. People, you need to give one another space to process, mourn, and to grieve in our own way. But we need vital, healthy connections with family, with friends, with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Mourning is a very personal act, but it is a communal experience. It is not something that we do alone. It is something we do as a whole community. And the most tangible form of comfort that you will receive will almost always come to you in the form of the presence of another brother or sister or friend or family member that is simply in your presence comforting you. This is what Paul has in mind and from our sacred reading in 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. What Paul is saying here is that we have received comfort from God as apostles. And part of the reason we have received that comfort so we can pass that comfort along to you. Brothers and sisters, never underestimate the ways that God wants to use want you one another to comfort each other in the midst of loss. God is able to comfort us. And Jesus' touch flows through the body of Christ. That's why it's called a body. Not the soul of Christ. Not the spirit of Christ in the world. The body. It is embodied. And so I just, parenthetically, I didn't... (laughs) Part of what's so challenging during this season is how hard it is to establish embodied connection with one another. Friends, do not give up seeking to be connected in embodied ways with one another. We need to respect social distance. We need to to do the things for our physical health, but you need embodied connection. That is an essential need, and it's worth taking risks over. So we need to embrace the emotional process. We need to bring our pain to God. We need to stay connected with the body. And finally, we need to cultivate hope in the resurrection. I want to encourage you, friends, to hope in the God who raises the dead. It is in the midst of suffering and loss that we learn to hunger and to yearn deep in our bones for the resurrection. 
again, what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians is appropriate. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly pair, and he will deliver us. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. The alchemy of dark emotion in our lives is not a magical therapeutic thing that happens. It is really the mysterious outworking of cross and resurrection and the inner life of our souls. It is death and resurrection playing itself out in the fibers of our being. Friends, know that no matter how much you have lost, how great that pain is, how devastating the consequences in your life, nothing is beyond resurrection. Nothing falls to the ground. Nothing will go unredeemed. Nothing in your life will not be delivered. God is the God who raises the dead, and he will deliver us us all. Amen. Let's pray. Cultivate in our spirits, O Lord, hope for your resurrection. Let us uh, release our attachments to the things of this world that we have staked so much of our identity and our comfort. And let us attach in our hearts and in our souls our longing and our hope in Jesus Christ, the one who is risen from the dead, the one who is our destiny, and that will raise us from the dead. And so use um, this process to draw us closer to you, Lord. And I pray especially for those who really are mourning deep, deep losses. And that is way more of us than I think we realize. I pray for the comfort of Jesus Christ comfort of the Father. I pray for hope in the midst of despair and confidence that you are the God who is always faithful in your love towards us and that you will deliver us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.